0: We've been walking through Proverbs over the past two summers, and we're continuing in our Proverbs sermon series today. This is uh, parenting principles. Uh, We've done three sermons on parenting principles from Proverbs, and this is part one. Uh, It's unusual today because I'm preaching this message into an empty room. Uh, It's just me in our normal auditorium, Mm on a Thursday morning in August. But for some reason, back in July, when I first preached this message uh, to a live congregation, it didn't record for some reason. And so I'm re-recording it because part one is probably the most important one of the parenting series from Proverbs. So I'm re-recording it today. And, uh, and so if you don't hear anything in the room, it's not because everybody is asleep. I mean, I'm not opposed to that. That could happen on a regular Sunday morning. But Uh, But no one's here. It's just me in an empty room, and I I haven't had these feelings since COVID uh, when I was preaching to myself in my office and recording it, and I don't miss it one bit. I I would take a live audience any day, but it's important for me to re-record this message, Uh, otherwise our Parenting from Proverbs three-part series would be incomplete, and arguably part one is the most important. Um, In it, we're going to describe how parents ought to model for their kids The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord as a beginning or as a foundation, not just for life and not just for your individual life, but for your family as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. And so we want to lay that foundation here. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So when we apply that to our homes, we want, as Christian parents, uh, first and foremost, we want to instill in our kids, what does the fear of the Lord look like? What does the fear of the Lord look like? And what does knowledge of the Holy One look like? How do we model that? How do we teach that? How do we demonstrate that to our kids? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And uh, so let me pray for us, and then, and then we will uh, we'll continue on with this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a sufficient guide for life and faith. Uh, in it, you reveal yourself to us. You make known to the world who you are through the, the word of God. And, and so we look no further than uh, your word for instruction and for wisdom and knowledge on how we should raise the children that you place in our home pray that you would give us uh, discernment today. As, as those who are listening uh, here, I pray that your, uh, their ears would be um, attuned to your Holy Spirit and that by your Spirit you would lead them and teach them and prepare them uh, for parenthood. Use your word for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the point of this uh, message is that you can do absolutely everything wrong in parenting. You could do it all wrong. You could blow it completely. And if you just get this one principle right, then if ultimately you will have fulfilled one of your highest, uh, not one of, but your highest obligation as a steward of the children God gives you. you. You could do everything wrong, but if you get this thing right, then your children will be sent out into the world. Um, having. You will have fulfilled your highest obligation. But on the flip side, you can do everything else right. You can uh, do discipline right, you can do teaching right, you can do training right, you can do and you can send out into the world moral children, but if they don't have an understanding of the gospel and they haven't seen it modeled, what does it mean for parents who know the Lord, fear the Lord and walk with the Lord? You can do everything else right, but neglect this one foundational and abiding principle. And you will have failed in your highest obligation as a steward of the children God gives you. I know that's a bold claim. But if you get the gospel right and if your home is oriented or gospel-centered and your parenting is gospel-centered, taking at the full revelation of Scripture, uh, uh, the fullness and the fulfillment that Jesus provides of the gospel, you know, in Proverbs, Jesus is the future wise son. Uh, He is um, the one that Solomon is ultimately pointing to. You can get everything right in parenting, but take Jesus out and take the gospel out and take the redemptive side out, and you will have failed in this obligation. So when I, you know, when Julie and I first became parents, uh, our culture's parenting advice seemed like it was constantly shifting. I, I I promise from one kid to another, it seemed like our pediatrician would recommend one thing with one kid and then a totally opposite thing with another kid. Put them to bed on their side, but never on their back and never on their stomach. And then a few years later, it was like never put their you know your kid on their side, but always on their stomach, or always on their back, or you know never on their side. It just seemed like it was constantly changing from kid to kid. Uh, we had our four you know relatively close together. Our culture is constantly telling us what our kids should eat and what they should not eat. You'll um, you know, hear um, advice on um, home birth, the benefits of that, or um, birthing centers, or a hospital birth, or um, you, you'll hear conflicting advice on should your kids sleep in a separate room, in a crib, in a bassinet, or should there be some sort of a family bed situation. Should we vaccinate? Should we not vaccinate? Should we partially vaccinate? Should we feed on demand or or should we feed on some sort of regimented schedule? Do we discipline our kids by giving them a choice or explaining consequences or should we spank them like Proverbs describes? And that's um, part three in this parenting uh, from Proverbs sermon series. Um, how How should we Discipline our kids. What does Proverbs say about that? Well, our culture has a lot to say about it, but it seems to be constantly shifting. It seemed like when Julie was pregnant, um, you know, at the time in the early 2000s, if you weren't playing, you know, Mozart and classical music in the womb, um, if you weren't using educational toys from a home based business, or if you didn't have black and red and white colored toys, Right? Psychology studies at the time said that that was most beneficial to kids. It seemed like if you weren't doing all those things right, then your kid was going to go to prison for sure. Like you were going to ruin them. And I, I remember the, the parental pressure that we felt. Um, we better put them on their side or we better wrap them up or we better put them in a crib or we better, you know, there were all these different advices, uh, pieces of advice on how we should do this and how we shouldn't. Well, I think the point here of this message and of this series is as Christian parents, when will we stop bouncing around from the latest trend to the next trend? And when will we get off this merry-go-round? Aren't there principles that we can follow that were true a thousand years ago, that are true now, and that will be true a thousand years from now, should the Lord delay his return? Hasn't God, the creator and redeemer of our souls, hasn't? He, the one who knows us better than anyone else, hasn't he given us, uh, us some instruction on parenting? Why are we so quick to apply the latest fads and trends and psychological or pediatric guidelines for parenting while often completely ignoring uh, biblical principles for parenting? And don't misquote me here. I'm not saying ignore your pediatrician, I'm not saying ignore psychology or cultural ways that influence the way we parent but i'm saying that it is wrong for us to hold them above what scripture says as christians we ought to have a high enough understanding of scripture that if god recorded it and it's been preserved for us and it's endured through every culture through all these civilizations for all these thousands of years that we should as christ followers admonish and esteem the scripture um, higher than all of these other sources, uh, taking them into account, but only in a uh, you know a correct, um, uh, well, only in some sort of a, a correct understanding of what Scripture says first. The truth is, the Bible has a lot to say about parenting. You can't. You'll have to tear pages out of your Bible um, if you ignore what it says about uh, parenting. You know, from even from the beginning, Moses in Deuteronomy 6, the, what, the passage we call the Shema, the, you shall hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and then you shall teach these things to your children when you rise up and when you sit down and when you, um, when you walk by the way that you should be constantly teaching these to your children. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. David in the Psalms, uh, he describes from generation to generation that we will declare the wonders of God from one generation to the other. That's parents teaching their children, grandparents teaching their grandchildren. Even in Paul's epistles, he reveals these uh, principles for a gospel oriented household instructions to mothers and fathers and children. Look in Ephesians, uh, you know, chapter uh, 5 and 6, you'll find these household instructions. Um, And Proverbs, of course, that's our series. It it also relates to parenting. Um, As a matter of fact, all of Proverbs is Solomon, the son of David, trying to instill wisdom into his sons. But I think one of the uh, most important things that we need to see when it comes to Proverbs and parenting, and Proverbs in any topic, is that we, we have to, as Christ followers, Make sure that we're careful to see Jesus in Proverbs, especially as we seek to parent in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm quoting from a book called Give Them Grace, Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Jesus by Elise Fitzpatrick and Jessica Thompson. And those authors say this, Remembering that Proverbs and the way we discipline are preeminently about Jesus Christ will transform the way we apply correction to our own children. And even in times of correction, we'll whisper his name to them through our tears and theirs. All of this is not to suggest that we ignore the plain teaching of Proverbs and instead simply look for Jesus. No, the plain words of the Proverbs are for our good, and we will grow in wisdom if we respond to them in faith and humility. It is just that if we neglect to see Jesus there too we will wrongly assume that we will be able to automatically accomplish something that not even Solomon could accomplish, produce wise children. In addition, because the Proverbs are so clear-cut and seem like promises, we'll believe that our performance will guarantee success. Many so-called Christian parenting books develop the parental wisdom in Proverbs without any recognition of the presence of the Christ. Because a devout Jew could employ Proverbs in the same way, this isn't a Christian paradigm. Parenting methods that assume or ignore the gospel are not Christian. The gospel must hold the center in all we think, do, and say with our kids. And ultimately, that's the point of today's message, is that the fear of the Lord is equal to a gospel centrality. So if you're going to instill in your parenting a view of Jesus through Proverbs, through the fear of the Lord, it has to include gospel centrality. And as I argued last year in our summer series through Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is an Old Testament uh, pointing forward to redemption revealed in the gospel. So the fear of the Lord actually includes believing on Jesus Christ in obedience and faith. The fear of the Lord includes repenting of sin and uh, orienting yourself toward God in repentance, approaching him in humility and faith from a point of need. And that fear of the Lord uh, would complete our gospel understanding. So gospel parenting uh, equates to the fear of the Lord instilling in our children. In short, we must give our children a clearer picture of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and its implications in everything that we do and say, in the way we discipline, in the way that we correct our children, in the way that we love them, in the way that we give them grace, in the way that we let them fail so that they can see their need for Jesus. In so many different ways, our parenting, even rooted in Proverbs, has to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the redemptive application there. So here's a couple of points as you decide to listen to the rest of this message or not. You might say, well, I'm not really currently a parent, so this doesn't apply to me. Or, or maybe you're an empty nest phase of your life and you've already raised your children. Maybe you're a grandparent. A lot of these principles can still apply to you um, as you parent uh, growing children or as you coach uh, younger parents in the congregation um, it 's not just for people with parents and it's, or with kids and it 's also not for people who it 's also for people who don 't yet have kids. You might think i 'm not even married i 'm a high school kid i don 't even know why I am you know even or college i don 't even know why i 'm supposed to listen to this but But the sooner you begin to embed these principles in your life, it will be uh, easier when you do have kids as well. One other point, as you decide to listen to the rest of this message, there is no formula or promise that really guarantees the outcome. And it's important to state that really clearly right up front, that you can't guarantee the outcome of your kids. You could do everything right, uh, and and still your kids might walk away from the Lord and, and, and reject Jesus Christ. There is no formula for that. Um, all of Proverbs is this instruction from parents to children? But but you can see it in Solomon's life. I mean, he didn't. He possessed wisdom and knowledge, but it did not guarantee the outcome, uh, which is clearly um, evident in his life as well. The aim, the goal, the purpose of parenting is a young adult who fears the Lord. If we release our kids into the world at eighteen or whatever age they leave. Um, The goal is that they have a healthy understanding of what it means to fear the Lord because of the time spent in our home. The goal is gospel. To fear the Lord is to have faith in Jesus and to live a life in passionate pursuit of him. Uh, You can raise a moral kid. You can raise a well-behaved kid. You can release a young man or a young woman who is smart, good in school, knowledgeable. You can release bold, confident leader-of-leaders type young adults. You could release into the world a young adult that handles money well and and has a really strong work ethic. You can release a kid that you'd be proud of, that is a defender of the weak, that steps in the place of those who are being bullied. You could release kind-hearted, compassionate young adults that stick up for others. You could release into the world an athletic and competitive child who wants to win more than anything else and has good sportsmanship and all those things, and the world values people with those qualities. But without gospel centrality, you will have failed your children. Without the gospel, you will have missed the mark of your goal of gospel-centered, kingdom-minded, Jesus-honoring parenting. But the reality is that even with a gospel focus and biblical training, you can't guarantee that your child will leave your home with faith in Jesus. And so that pressure is not on you. That pressure is, um, that is God's decision to save or not to save a child or a young adult. But it's your role as a Christian steward of the children who are in your home to model what that looks like. But to emphasize worldly values at the expense of the gospel... If you raise a great defender or a knowledgeable student who is very bright and has a future in academia or an incredible athlete at the expense of the gospel, um, then you will definitely have, have failed. Your children will grow to young adults. One day they will join a church, you know, in their 20s or 30s, and they will develop a testimony that includes the things that you are doing now. They will say things like, when I was a kid, we valued sports above everything. Sometimes we even skipped church to go, you know, to um, to athletic events, or or we valued our vacations or our family time even more than participation in the congregation. They will talk about the the atmosphere of your home and whether it contributed to their understanding, uh, healthy or unhealthy, of who God is. So it's a it's a very um, uh, serious. Um, It's a very serious obligation that we have to order our homes rightly. And it would be wrong to emphasize worldly values at the expense of gospel centrality. Uh, Will they say, my parents pointed me to Jesus? They modeled a love for Jesus and faith in Jesus and God's word? Or will they say, you know, we were a well-behaved, moral family, Uh, We emphasized money or leisure or hobbies or sports. Those were the priorities of our home. But I never really had the impression that my mom or dad really loved Jesus and really loved his word. So you can get a lot of things wrong even when it seems right and acceptable by the culture. But if you get one thing right with gospel centrality, all those other things may fall into order. So make it your aim in parenting to raise children into adults who fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So how do you, practically speaking, parent your children in a way that makes the gospel not just evident, but captivating and irresistible? Let me ask that question again. The rest of the message really hinges on this question. So how do you, practically speaking, Parent your children in a way that makes the gospel not just evident, but captivating and irresistible. I'm going to uh, spend the remainder of the message on a few basic activities, really just five activities that will help you apply Proverbs 1-7. It will help you begin with the fear of the Lord, and it will help your child experience a home where the, um, the good news about Jesus Christ is evident. So here are those five activities. Number one, live your faith sincerely in front of your kids. Live your faith sincerely in front of your kids. I think about Paul in the New Testament. He wrote to Timothy in the second epistle, 2 Timothy 1.5. He said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Did you catch that? Lois lived out her faith. She lived out her faith sincerely. And then Eunice got saved and lived out her faith sincerely. And so Paul says, hey, Timothy, I see your sincere faith. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And I saw it in your grandmother, Lois, and I saw it in your mother, Eunice. Paul's Calling this sincere faith. He's not saying it's perfect faith. He's not saying it's um, ideal faith or or um, the uh, the perfect model of faith. But he's just he said it's sincere faith. I love this word sincere, and I did a study on it years ago. Um, and and the word sin and Sarah uh, Latin means um, without wax. Um, sin and Sarah. Now, let me just be perfectly upfront and honest. There are, uh, you know, if you were to look at the etymology of the word sincere, this particular without wax definition, some people say, yes, that's what it means. Some people argue that that's not what it means at all. I think it's illustrative, though, and it's consistent with the definition that this idea, the story that I'm about to tell without wax, makes sense to us. Uh, and, it, and it helps us understand it better. So the story goes, in the etymology of, of sincere, without wax, is that craftsmen in the Middle Ages would use wax to cover up imperfections in their work. Uh, if you're um, doing woodworking and you're trying to present a piece of furniture in the marketplace and it has nicks and cuts in it, that you would melt wax and that you would put it in those cracks so that it appears perfect, And then you could paint over it or you could, uh, in some other way, cover over it. But that wax hides the mistakes. And so if something was sincere, it it was um, without wax. It it was presented as it is, um, raw in its natural condition. Now, that's the story that may or may not be true. But the actual definition means pure and unmixed from the 1530s. Uh, pure and unmixed from the French word sincere, or from Latin, sinceris, which means whole, clean, pure, uninjured, or unmixed. So you can see how the craftsman's story is fairly consistent with the, uh, the definition of sincere. But I think the point for us is that Lois, Eunice, and Timothy had a sincere faith that was pure, whole, unmixed, so it speaks to their wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And so when Paul wrote that Timothy's faith was genuine and pure uh, and sincere, uh, it gives us wisdom in how we should live our faith. So in your family, as a parent, live your faith sincerely and purely and genuinely in front of your kids. Let them see the ups and downs. Let them see your wrestling with God. Let them see your perseverance when when things don't go your way. Let them see you worship and pray, not just when it's easy and not just when it's public, but let them see you worship and pray and read Scripture and wrestle with God in private uh, in your home. Let them see you consistently walk with the Lord on a Tuesday afternoon as, as much as you present yourself on a Sunday morning as the as one who walks with the Lord. Let them see all those ups and downs. Give them a window into how you read and study and memorize and meditate and apply and, uh, and all the ways in which you interact with God's word. Let them see that. Live out your faith sincerely in front of your kids. So that's number one. Number two, practical tips on how you can model the fear of the Lord. Number one, live out your faith sincerely. Number two, pray. I mean, it sounds so obvious. Of course, pray. Pray, but I mean pray for God to save them. Pray not just, you know, in a bowed head, closed hands, kind of reserved way. I mean pray in a pleading, yearning, crying out, desperate, these are the last sort of moments that I have, in a crying out kind of way. Pray that way for your children. Understanding that with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. You know, a consistent prayer for you, for your children, should be, Lord, let them know you and love you and, and follow you all the rest of their days. Uh, for, for years, um, I've prayed for my children. Lord, no matter what happens, I pray that they would have a sincere faith in you, that they would experience you, um, and, and that that would catapult them into a life of loving you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Praying in that way, understanding that salvation is from God, you can't save your kids. Um, All you can do is plead with the Lord to save your children. Remember the story in Mark 10, um, the rich young ruler story, Mark 10, 17 through 27. This guy comes up to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this guy is perfect. He's got uh, money, he's a leader. Uh, he's moral. Jesus asked him, you know, follow the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and he says, all these I've kept from my youth. All the disciples, I'm sure of it, everyone following Jesus, looking at this guy would have said, this is a model Israelite. This is the guy who's got it together. He's moral. He's blessed by God, both financially and in his understanding and approach to God. But But this guy goes away sorrowful and sad, rejecting salvation because of his great possessions. And here's the insight that informs our prayer for our kids. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who could be saved? I mean, you can see the apostles and the disciples, they're all flipping out. If it can't be this guy, then who can be saved? If he's the best model of us, then who can be saved? And this is the principle that should drive your prayer for your kid. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. That's Mark 10, 27. So if salvation is impossible with man and it's only possible with God, if there is no formula to guarantee your child will be saved, then prayer becomes, listen, not your last resort, but your first option. Prayer, you don't wait to pray for your kids until they need it or until they come into a, a difficult situation and it's a crisis and then, oh yeah, I forgot I can, you know, I can pray. No, prayer becomes your first option, not your last resort. Well, you might say, well, what about Proverbs six, right? Proverbs 22, six in most of our Bibles is translated, train a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Doesn't that mean that if we raise our kids in a Christian home that they will one day return to it, even if they reject it? Isn't that what that verse says? Well, listen, even in, in Hebrew, there is no word that can be translated as should or right. If you look at Proverbs 22.6, there is no word that is translated should or right in, in that Hebrew verse. That's an addition. That's a commentary from a translation committee that thinks um, that there is a way that the child should go or a right way. And, and that word is just not in the original Hebrew. Most Hebrew commentaries make the point that a better translation would be, train a child in his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In other words, if you leave a kid to their own ways, they will stay in their own ways. It's a warning, not a promise. Um, So that passage might say, well, you know, if I train my kids in the gospel when they're old, they'll, they'll return to it. They will not depart from it. No, that's not how Proverbs 22.6 6 should be viewed. So we should plead with God. The point is that we should plead with God for our salvation. So that's number one and two. Number one, model sincere faith in front of your kids ups, downs, goods, bads, perseverance during hard times. All those things need to be true. Number two, pray in this sort of desperate way that God would save your kids. Number three, saturate your home with Scripture. Saturate your home with Scripture. I went to visit a friend. I had to drop off a book. She was getting in her car. Her young kids were um, out running, getting into the car as well. And and one of the kids just jumped in the car and hid in the back seat. And uh, and I didn't think much of it. I dropped off the books. We chatted for a minute. I moved on. Uh, she moved on. But maybe 15 minutes later, she called uh, and she said, "I got to tell you this story." Um, after you left, I asked my uh, one of my kids, "Hey, why did you hide in the in the car when?" Pastor Gibson came up and he said, I'm so glad that guy is gone because I thought he was just going to come and preach um, the Bible to me. (laughs) I thought he was just going to come and start reading me Bible verses. Like as a pastor, one of my jobs is to go to each of your homes and just uh, sit down, you know, and and have a sermon uh, at each of your homes. This little kid was afraid that that was going to happen. Now, the funny thing is I, I know for a fact that their family life is saturated with scripture. He just didn't want me to be the one um, preaching to him at his house. <laughs> but the truth is that we should saturate our homes with scripture, not me coming to your house and teaching scripture, but you saturating your home in scripture. Uh, and we see that uh, in, in clearly in 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. Paul, again, writing to Timothy, says, As for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Timothy 3.15. The scriptures were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So parents, if you want your children to believe, if that's your ultimate goal for them to be saved, saturate your home with scripture. The scriptures are able to make that child wise for salvation. It doesn't mean they're going to be saved. It means that God's word will not return void and that there will have an influence on their life later maybe, but the, to the degree that they understand the gospel and the scripture, it makes them wise and prepared for salvation. So memorize scripture. Talk about scripture regularly. Sing scripture Use Bible stories as illustrations and teaching points, examples of good and evil, godliness and wickedness. You know, interact with the news and current events. Um, Every day, usually I try to listen to The Briefing. Uh, It's by Al Mohler. He says it this way. It's a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. So basically, he'll take a handful of headlines and he'll um, use scripture to help us understand how we should think about these current events. Well, you don't need Al Mohler. I mean, you do, but, but you don't need Al Mohler to do that. You can do that also. You can look at the news and see violence um, or uh, uh, you know, something positive, and, and you can help your kids make sense of it by using scripture. And this is part of saturating them with scripture so that they can be wise for salvation. Two more and uh, and then we'll be we'll be finished here, um, number one, model sincere faith, number two, plead with God, pray for God to save your kids, number three, saturate them um, with scripture, and number four don't skip the bad news and just give them the good news. What do I mean by that well there the gospel message is good news that 's what gospel means it means good news, but but it's good news in light of bad news, and I know many parents do this. They say, you know, they'll tell their kids, you know, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you so much, and 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 they'll sing, Jesus loves me, and the kid will sing, Jesus loves me, and it becomes this wonderful thing. They'll memorize John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And they'll emphasize the love of God and the love of Jesus. That's good news. And I'm not saying you shouldn't emphasize good news, but I'm saying that there has to be um, the right mix of bad news also. They have to know what sin is. They have to know what sin is and who it is against. You have to clearly identify sin, and and name it. That's pride. That's. Uh, stealing you took that from them that steal you coveted that that's coveting and that is sin that's a lie and and telling lies is a sin they must know what sin is and they must know that sin has destructive consequences in their relationships with their peers with their family members but also destructive consequences in their relationship with god that's the bad news they have to know what sin is and they have to know what who sin is against. They have to know that sin must be punished. Now listen, the punishment of sin and the way you discipline your child informs the way they hear the gospel message. I can't emphasize that point enough right now. But if you listen to parenting from Proverbs part three, it's all about discipline and punishment. And if you never punish your kid, in a way that they understand that sin and disobedience hurts, then when they hear that Jesus died for me and he took my punishment for them, they're going to have a a misunderstanding of punishment if you're not doing it biblically. So the bad news must be emphasized as well as the good news. They have to know what sin is. They have to have labels for sin. They have to have concrete examples of their own sin. And as a parent, it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're ripping them apart and you're criticizing them. You just have to point out and identify that is a sin. That's unacceptable. That's destructive. And here's why they need bad news in addition to good news. And a good place to start is just in conversations about the 10 commandments. Right? Go to Exodus 20, help your kids understand in verses 1 through 11. I'm sorry, 1 through 17. What sin is uh, according to the standard of righteousness. As a parent, this should be a big part of the regular content that you're talking about with your children. Um you should, they should have some understanding of what sin is. Paul says in Galatians 3, 24 through 26, the law is our guardian until Christ came. It's just a, it's a tutor, it's a schoolmaster, the KJV says. It's a a tutor that helps a kid understand that sin. Um, It's the law, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, that becomes for us teaching material to help our kids understand the bad news, so that they can fully appreciate and receive the good news. All right. Finally, number five, uh, the last practical thing to help you instill the fear of the Lord in your home. If you're taking notes, you know number one was model sincere faith. Number two was plead with God, pray sincerely. Or I mean, pray fervently that God would save them. Number three, saturate them with Scripture because that will make them wise for salvation. Number four, don't overemphasize good news at the expense of bad news. Help them understand the bad news of the gospel, and that is what sin is, and that we're all guilty of it, and that it must be punished. And then number five, show them the glorious majesty and mercy of God demonstrated in the life and death of Jesus. You know, you have so many teachable moments and opportunities to point to the glory of God in the mystery of his great love for us demonstrated in Jesus, you should show them the glorious majesty and mercy of God, particularly demonstrated in the life and death of Jesus. For example, what am I talking about? Well, let's say that, uh, that one of your kids um, pushes another kid and, um, and takes their toy. And, and it's your role to correct them. Now, we used to use a spanking spoon called Mr. Pop, right? Um, The Bible says the Lord disciplines those he loves. Uh, Discipline is correction. It's not to be done in anger or in an emotional moment. Um, Discipline should be done in a corrective way. So we would explain this. We would get Mr. Pop, and we would tell our kids, listen, this behavior is wrong. You hurt this kid. You took his toy. Um, And so I love you, and so because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. And then comes you know mr. Pop, and he he does what he does best with the with the the pop, and then we speak the reality that ultimately Jesus took the real punishment for sin. Now you just got punished a little bit for this behavior this behavior is wrong, and it's sin it's sinful behavior and and sin hurts people but but ultimately Jesus took the real punishment for real sin. See how that's a gospel moment Gospel. God doesn't use Mr. Pop to deal with behavior change. God used a cross to deal with the sin, the force that drove you towards sin in the first place. God dealt with it by punishing Jesus on the cross. Or maybe your kid has a guilty conscience, and they beat themselves up for every bad decision they make. They start to feel terrible. Even as they get into teenage years, they might even want to you know, die because of the mistakes that they've made. They just want to crawl in a hole. Those moments are gospel moments where we can say something like, listen, you messed up, but you don't have to die for your mistakes or atone for your sins. Jesus already took that for you on the cross. So you can point to the cross and the gospel and the mercy of God. Yes, you blew it, but but for grace, but for the cross. You don't have to die for your own sins. Jesus died to take those sins on the cross for you. And I often said to my kids, listen, the gospel is never more real for you than it is right now. When you realize the severity of your sin and and, and, and how much it hurts somebody, and then you feel the light of the holiness of God exposing your sin, and you recognize, I deserve to be punished there 's never a moment that the Gospel is not more appropriate than it is right now because it 's at that moment that the good news becomes personally the best news. I baptized a member of our church, a young member a little girl a few months ago and um, and I remember uh, interviewing her years before, and she had a she knew the gospel she knew all the basics. You know Jesus died on the cross for sinners, and and sin is this, and it separates us from God. She knew all those things, but but there was just something about her understanding of the gospel that me and her parents both felt like, hey, maybe this isn't the right time. So they gave it a couple more years, um, you know, in their wisdom, and then they said, I think she's ready now. A couple years later, and I went back and I interviewed her. She still had the same understanding of the gospel, but but listen, a few years later when I did the interview. Um, something was different. She said, uh, I said, what's different in the way that you understand it?' She said, well, I used to think that the gospel and um, that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of people, but now I know that I need Jesus. He's not just for sinners and evil people out there. Now I know that I need Jesus. Do you see the difference there? Um, she understood the application of the cross was for her, not just the world, And that conviction revealed by the Holy Spirit made it appropriate for her to be baptized because she had a fuller understanding of the gospel. The only way a person comes to that realization is the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are some ways in which you can show the glorious majesty, mercy of God demonstrated in the life and death of Jesus in everyday parenting moments. There's dozens of more examples. But the fifth point there, the fifth practical tip is, continually point to the mercy and majesty of God in the life and death of Jesus in your parenting. So let me just restate in closing here, you can do absolutely everything wrong in parenting, but if you get this one thing right, then you will have fulfilled your highest obligation as a steward of the children God gives you. On the opposite side there, you can do everything else right and produce moral, well-behaved, smart business leaders, athletes, And if you miss gospel, then you've done a major disservice to the children that God has given you. Ultimately, the fulfillment of the total person of wisdom described in Proverbs is Jesus. Jesus is the wise son, so all of our parenting should point to him. I heard a a good quote, and I'll close with this. Um, J.C. Ryle, quote, Uh, He said, hell is truth known too late. Hell is truth known too late. Meaning that eventually every person will know the truth, right? Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So if hell is truth known too late, the only difference between being saved and unsaved is timing. Timing, that's the only difference. So while there is activity in your brain and breath in your lungs, the greatest thing you can do is help those around you come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And that starts with your family. Don't neglect gospel for morality or for cultural values. Emphasize gospel centrality in your parenting. Thanks for listening to this message. Um, It's weird for me to be in a room by myself uh, preaching this. I don't know how it was received. Usually I kind of appreciate the feedback I can see on people's faces. But I hope this content has been helpful for you. And uh, and if there are any questions, of course, um, you can see me or email me uh, in the links on this website. But I hope that this has been a blessing to you. Father, I pray for all those who hear this message uh, today, that it would help them to parent in a gospel-centered way and that their children would leave their house uh, at whatever age they leave, understanding that their parents modeled sincere faith, and, uh, and that they did so in a way that those kids understand what it means to fear the Lord. May it be true of my family, but may it be true of everyone who is hearing my voice right now. In Jesus' name, amen.